It's the SNL Hall of Fame Podcast. With your host, Jamie Dew. Chief Librarian, Thomas Senna. And featuring, Matt Ardill. And now, Curator of the Hall, Jamie Dew. All right. Thank you, Doug Donats. It is my pleasure to be here with you all this week in the Saturday Night Live Hall of Fame. It is spring where I am. It's a beautiful day, but there is a lot of mud on the ground, and you know what that means. That mat that you see outside the front door of the SNL Hall of Fame. Use it, baby. Wipe those feet and keep that mud on the outside where it belongs because the SNL Hall of Fame podcast is a weekly affair and each episode we take a deep dive into the career of a former cast member, host, musical guest, or writer and add them to the ballot for your consideration. Once the nominees have been announced, we turn to you, the listener, to vote for the most deserving and help determine who will be enshrined for perpetuity in the hall. I'm I'm really quite pumped about today's show. We're joined by my friend Ryan McNeil to, uh, well, he is of the matinee.ca, but he is here to, to talk to Thomas about uh, Bill Murray. So that's pretty exciting. A, a great cast member in Bill Murray. Um, but before we do that, the aforementioned Matt that I discussed is not the same one that we're going to turn to now. This is a different Matt. This is Matt of Minutia Minute Matt. And uh, we're going to learn some minutia for the next minute or so from Matt. I love alliteration, don't you? Let's go to Matt now. Hey, Matt, how are you doing, my friend? Hey, Jamie. Super excited to be here today. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, have you here. What have you got for us today, Matt? Well, Bill Murray, classic cast member, six foot two, born September 21st, 1950. Part of that almost original cast. Uh, he has 99 acting credits, 10 writer credits, and seven producer credits. He comes from a family of performers. His brother, Brian Doyle Murray, his brother, Joel Murray, and his brother, John Murray, all actors, also all appeared in Scrooge along with him. And his sister, Nancy, yeah, all they're all in Scrooge. You just got to watch for them. Uh, and his sister, Nancy, is a Dominican nun, but she also put on a one-woman show as a nun performing the story of St. Catherine of Siena. Uh, so they've got the performing in their bones. Uh, he wow. came to acting in a weird way. He was busting, busted smuggling 20 pounds of weed uh, in O'Hare National Airport after he got on the plane and started joking about it with his seatmate, who did not know him. Uh, now, he got lucky, he received probation, and his brother Brian got him to join Second City to study with Del Close. Not exactly the most sober of mentors, uh, <laughs> but it led to where he is. Now, he is a huge sports fan, a huge span fan of community service, uh, but he was ejected from both the Boy Scouts and his little league team as a child for being a handful. That didn't deter him. He He's a baseball and sports fan to this day. He, Despite being kicked out of that little league team, he owns four minor league teams, and is an investor in five more, and was inducted into the South Atlantic League Hall of Fame in 2012 for his support. 
he he worked as a caddy as in his youth, so makes his role in Caddyshack that much more amazing. And he and his brothers own the Murray Brothers Caddyshack restaurant in the World Golf Complex in Florida, uh, where he competes in pro-am tournaments and wins quite often. He is also, in fact, a huge bowler. And if you watch him in Kingpin, that turkey that, yeah, that turkey that he bowled, he actually bowled that. So people freaking out are genuinely freaking out because he bowled a natural turkey. No special effects. Um, but, you know, at the same time, he's very supportive of, uh, of actors. Uh, when he was, ca- and, and directors and performers, uh, when he was in Rushmore, uh, he plays him a generous benefactor to a young visionary. Well, during filming Rushmore, Disney pulled the funding for the helicopter scene. So Murray gifted Wes Anderson a $25,000 check so he could shoot the scene. Uh, though Anderson says he never shot it, he or cashed it, he found other ways to get the, the scene done. But he also worked for only $9,000 for his pretty much, you know, secondary role. Like he was one of the three leads of that film and worked for less than scale. Um, He he continued to be amazing with Wes Anderson when he was on the Life Aquatic. While filming, he worked to get his diving certification. Um, Now, he's got an eccentric way of getting cast. I'm sure a lot of the listeners are aware of his 1-800 number. Uh, For those who don't know, you can, if you can find it, you can call him and he may be in your thing. That could be a wedding. It could be a party. It could be your movie. He does not have a manager. He does not want a manager. He will be in your thing if you can catch him. Now, he's this has helped and hindered him, though. I mean, he's had some great, great roles. Not to mention he's been like, you know, cast as Johnny Storm in the Fantastic Four. Was almost cast as Bruce Wayne in the Batman uh, directed by Tim Burton. But... One time he was listening to an interview with uh, Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg, who said they loved him. They wanted him as Eddie Valiant in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but couldn't find him, uh, which oh upset God. him because he wanted that role. He, he saw that role and that role is that is for me. That is the perfect film. I want to be in that. Um, wow. But. Sometimes he makes weird choices. Like one time when he took the role of Garfield, he did it because he saw the script and thought it and read it was written by Joel Cohen. But he read that as Joel Cohen, C-O-E-N of the Cohen brothers, not realizing it was Joel Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, who was a different and let's just say differently focused writer of films. Now, He's still he's supportive of friends, was David Letterman's first guest on Late Night in 82, his last guest on The Late Show in 2015. Uh, but he's had a, a unique experience in the world. Like after his film Razor's Edge bombed, uh, which he funded from his Ghostbusters m- money, uh, he retired from comedy. He actually moved to Paris and enrolled in the Sorbonne studying philosophy and history. So that explains that kind of professorial energy he brings to all of his Wes Anderson films. So yeah, layered and nuanced person. So I am very much looking forward to hearing the opinions today. 
Yeah, me too. Should be great. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you. Let's send it down to Thomas. Thomas, take it away. Yes, thank you so much. I am joined by Ryan McNeil, the host of the Matinee Cast, a great movie podcast. Right now we're recording this, we're one week from the Academy Awards, and Ryan, I listened to the Fablemans episode of your podcast pretty well, recently. Well, I was the one, yes. I <laughs> know, it was really good stuff, and uh, I just kind of, I enjoy what you do, how you guys talk, how you talk about movies and everything, and so, yeah, so great job on your podcast, and and, and welcome Thank you. What I love about that episode, I, I try not to play favorites with guests, um, as I'm sure you don't either and Jamie doesn't either. Uh, but what I do enjoy is there are some guests who I know I'm going to have to do less work. And my guest on that show, Corey Atad, is uh, one of those guys who I know can talk. So when I get him on, it's a lot less me and it's a lot more Corey. And I'm always excited that I can just kind of ask my questions, let Corey like talk for a good five or ten minutes and just give me all kinds of material to mold the show with later. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm not surprised that you enjoyed that show because that's the guest. That's, yeah. that's the whole secret of 300 shows. It's never about me. It's the people I get. So whatever you guys did during that Fableman's episode was really great. And a lot of your stuff leading up to the Academy Awards, which by the time we release this will have been passed. uh, That stuff's been really great, too. So I'm just really happy to have you. Thank you. And uh, before we get started with our uh, topic today, which is Bill Murray, we have some Season 2 SNL Hall of Fame podcast business to address. So you were on with me for Dave Grohl which mm-hmm. I thought was just a wonderful episode. We actually had really good feedback uh, with that Dave Grohl episode. Dave received 32.2% of the vote, which I was simultaneously disappointed and encouraged by that because we've seen interesting voting results with musicians. So honestly, 32.2% is good by musician standards. For context, Paul McCartney had 29.8%, and this was his second try he actually bumped up from his first try. So Dave is actually, if a musician is going to get, if a musical guest is going to get into the SNL Hall of Fame, Dave Grohl is kind of in pole position to be that person. So anything you'd like to say about the voting results and, you know, trying to get Dave into the Hall of Fame by the end of season three? I mean, it's it, the the music is a big part of the show, and that that's like I I have always said that I along with watching it for the comedy and watching it for uh, the the you know the cast who goes on to do incredible things. I do tune in for the music. I love watching my favorite bands perform. I love learning about new bands. Um, there's been a lot of times where I find out about a band on SNL and I just end up buying a ticket to go see them live. Um, so I'm and just in the grand scheme of the show music has played such a big part so i'm hoping that once we get some of the name brands in like some of the you know the people who first come to mind when you think about snl as an entity that we can you know start latching on to some of the music too 
Yeah, and season three of the SNL Hall of Fame is a little less top-heavy than season two, so I think we will see a chance for people like Dave Grohl to get a really big bump into the Hall of Fame. In my opinion, Dave is the most deserving musical guest out of any musical guest that SNL's ever had. Um, Maybe a little biased, I don't know, but that's just my perspective as one guy. I will still stump for Prince. I will be here every yes. time I get a chance. <laughs> you are the Prince guy. I am the Prince guy. Yes. Yeah. yes. So last time you were on, of course, we did talk about Dave. Didn't necessarily ask you about your history with SNL as a viewer. So I want to start off leading into the, our Bill Murray discussion. Sure. I want to know how you became interested in SNL and maybe Bill Murray specifically. What's actually interesting is, so I am, in my family, I'm the oldest sibling, and I have some older cousins, but they're seven or eight years older than me. So I was kind of in this weird little spot of not having a navigator when it came to like pop culture, and that trickled down to a lot of things, movies, music, uh, TV. So when I was... 12, 11, 12, 13, like around the time that a lot of people get into shows like this, and especially because if their older siblings watch it, all of my friends were watching SNL um, in the age of Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, Kevin Nealon, Phil Hartman, though that that cast, that like 90 to 93 kind of cast, but I wasn't. And I actually kind of, there were a lot of times where I felt left out because I didn't understand the jokes. Wayne's World as a thing did not compute to me. Um, Somebody said, well, isn't that special? Ryan was like, What's right over my head. Yeah. Just, <laughs> so uh, it was it was a it was a strange thing. It was a, a bunch of jerk classmates that watch things and didn't want to include me and then make their jokes on Monday morning. But eventually I, you know, just took the wheel myself and started watching. So my real appreciation of SNL kind of picks up around 92 and goes from there. So, you know, I think I said on the uh, the episode where we were stumping for people and like horse trading our votes that um, everybody has their SNL. Like everybody comes in at a certain point and that cast is the cast that is most in dear to them. So my cast is people like Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, Tim Meadows, um, you know, like the little bit they could do with Chris Rock, Phil Hartman, as I mentioned before, that kind of cast is is my SNL, that like 92 to 95 kind of group. Ever since then, like I, I still enjoy where it's gone since then and the talented people that have come and gone, you know, certainly, as I said, the music that's, that's come through it. Um, but I'll always have an affinity for finally understanding what the heck my friends were talking about. <laughs> so Bill was a second city guy, just a little background. He was a second city guy from Chicago. Of course, second city produced so many of the comedic Titans of that time. You had along with Bill Murray, like John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radner um, performed a bit with the Chicago second city. He also performed in the national lampoon radio hour, which had Belushi, Gilda, Chevy Chase, Harold Ramis, the recently past Richard Bells or Christopher Guest, just kind of a who's who of comedic titans from around that time. I don't know if you knew, Ryan, that Bill was a cast member on Saturday Night Live in 1975. But not that Saturday Night Live. There was actually a show called Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell that aired on on ABC. So that's actually why the original Saturday Night Live, our SNL was called just Saturday Night. 
Right, because, right, right. The other, the other, the other name was taken. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't know that, but that's there's there's got to be like a trivia question of how many how many actors appeared on both. Yeah, I think Brian Doyle Murray appeared on on Howard Cosell's Saturday Night Live. Um, I don't have the the cast members in front of me, but that would be interesting <laughs> to go yeah. back to if a listener would send us a message and <laughs> and let us know if you actually did. if you actually watched that Saturday Night Live of Howard Cosell's. Uh, let us know as well. <laughs> Bill Murray did audition for for our SNL back in 1975, but didn't get cast. So he actually started on SNL in January of 1977. So Chevy Chase left. They wanted to fill Chevy's role, and everybody, the whole cast, pretty much knew Bill. They worked with Bill, and I think he had a lot of their trust and a lot of trust from Lorne. So he did make his debut in season two. That was episode 11, again, January of 77. And I want to start here, and then we can just kind of go around uh, with Bill Murray. But I think it's important to start at the beginning because he actually, contrary to popular belief and a lot of my belief, Bill had a pretty good first episode. He led actually two sketches and did a weekend update commentary. He uh, talked about Rosalind Carter's sex appeal as the new first lady, (laughs) (laughs) which seems kind of uh, almost typical Bill Murray. That's, That's a foreshadowing of a lot of what we would see on the show. Rosalind Carter is not only going to be a very dynamic first lady, but also a very attractive one. Her lush brunette good looks are sultry, southern, and S-E-X-Y. Those big brown eyes and those full, pouty, pouty lips bring a smoldering sensuality to the White House. And he was also in a Conehead sketch, so Bill Murray was in a lot in that first episode. But that's important to me because maybe one of the first things that he's actually known for on the show was his appeal to the audience, essentially. This was in his sixth episode yeah. uh, in season two. Hello, I'm Bill Murray. Uh, you can call me Billy, but uh, around here everybody just calls me the new guy. I want to thank the producer, Lauren Michaels, for uh, urging me to speak with you directly. You see, I'm a little bit concerned. I don't think I'm making it on the show. I'm a funny guy, but I haven't been so funny on the show. My friends say, how come they're giving you all those parts that aren't funny? Well, it's not the material, it's me. It's not that I'm not funny, it's that I'm not being funny at the right time. Honest. What did you think of Bill talking to the camera and sort of telling the viewers, please like me, here's who I am? (laughs) It's not something you see very often. I mean, it's something that I think they would adopt more and more as time went on and we started getting the weekend correspondent, the weekend update correspondents as themselves, right? Like that's the thing is like, you know, going back to, to our recent season, where's the line between actual Pete Davidson and the Pete Davidson that would talk on SNL uh, on, on weekend update? Because I'm like, I don't think that the line is really, really that distinct. And Murray was doing something very, very similar and, and setting it up, you know, like he's he's basically in that moment of saying, I know that I, I know that some of you might think that I don't belong here, but really I am funny. I, I hope that you can 
you know, just give me another minute. I have to, you know, make sure that I'm not funny the times that I'm not getting paid. Like that, that was, that was what really sold it for me was what he's talking about. Like he goes, I met a girl at a party last week and she thought, oh, I thought you'd be funny, but I couldn't be funny because I was saving my funny for you folks. It's a trendsetting thing. Like, I don't know how much they were doing that in that for how much, how meta they were getting in those first few seasons, but that's, um, kind of something that they would keep coming back to. And I mean, even Bill himself would keep coming back to it. I always say that it's it's wild to watch the first appearances, the young appearances of a comedian. You know, I, I went through this with, um, I was reading a book and it talked about one of the early stand-up appearances by Bernie Mac, who I know in kind of the more modern version of who he is. But this was a Live at whatever that comedy show is, not live at the Apollo, but it's one of those like, you know, like live kind of no holds barred kind of comedy yeah, stand ups. Yeah. And Bernie is out there just killing in the strangest outfit where he's got like a caricature of himself on his jeans and just absolutely destroying the crowd. But it's not the kind of comedian that you're used to. So, same thing with Bill. Like, Bill now, like he's gone through several phases in my lifetime, and now he's in this kind of older curmudgeon kind of phase. But watching him, not just, you know, watching him younger is one thing, but watching him younger and having this plea of, I know you're not sure that I should be here, but please let me tell you, I am funny, is both sweet and meta all at the same time. I'm not used to seeing Bill being so self-deprecating in a lot of ways. So that was super interesting. There were a lot of funny lines. So it was like self-deprecating, of course, in a funny way. But this was like a genuine attempt for him to introduce and endear himself Mm -hmm. to this audience. And And it's especially interesting to me because he had a good, confident first episode. So I was under always under the assumption over the years that Bill was just not on screen. And then he's just like, all right, screw this. I need to talk to the viewers directly and reassure them that that I can do the job. You had mentioned that he talked about how he had to save, he had to learn how to save his funny for the show. And he, I think yeah. he used Dan Aykroyd yeah. as kind of a example of somebody who's, who's funny on the show, but would not be funny, yeah. <laughs> like in a social setting. And uh, that was funny, but almost kind of, I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. I'm sure there's a, a lot way. of truth to that. Like, you know, like it's, it's their job. Like, I'm sure a lot of them are naturally funny, but at the same time, I'm sure that they're like, you know, when they, when they're like just grocery shopping or when they're just like having coffee with a friend, they don't want to be on necessarily. So there, there probably was a lot more truth to that. Yeah, it's almost similar to, I don't know if you, I mean, you have experience with podcasting and whatnot, and I used to work in radio as well, and there was almost a save it for the air kind Mm -hmm. of mentality. A lot of times I used to co-host a show a while back uh, in radio, and when my co-host and I would get into like funny conversation, especially about the topic that we were going to discuss... One of us would stop each other and say, let's save it for the air. And that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of an old thing. So exactly. Yeah. So that was a really neat introduction by Bill Murray to the SNL audience. And uh, I know we said we were going to maybe go around, but I, but this does actually lead into a character. So as not to bury the lead, maybe of this episode, Uh, three episodes later, he introduces Nick, the lounge singer. (laughs) That's the very first installment of Nick, the lounge singer. Personally, I love Nick the Lounge Singer. I don't know about you though, Ryan. What do you do? You like Nick the Lounge Singer? He's hilarious. <laughs> uh, it's it's you know it it shouldn't really work because it's just kind of abrasive. I think a lot of us have been in those kinds of rooms 
where the person holding the mic, you really just want them to stop talking much quicker than they ever do. We've all been either at a hotel bar or a wedding or something like that, where the person singing is just taking one of your songs and ripping it to shreds. And it, this should be painful, but it's, he just, he, he commits. That's the one thing I'm, I always need to say about a comedian like Bill Murray is he will always commit to the bit sometimes to his own, like his own demise, but he, he will never, he will never short sell anything. He is always fully committed to whatever it is, including, you know, like wailing, making up words to the theme from Star Wars, first of all, and wailing them at the top of his lungs. Ah, Star Wars, nothing but Star Wars. Give me the Star Wars, don't let them end. If we encountered this type of person in real life, it would be almost annoying and grating, get this guy off the stage, he's butchering this song or whatever. But Nick, to me, I can't help but root for him. He's like relentlessly positive. (laughs) When people don't care about him being there, when they're just trying to have a drink or whatever, he's just so positive and just so him. And here's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to win you over, essentially. And It's like if Stuart Smalley could sing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that's that's kind of a like every Nick's just telling himself like I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me, like almost in song form. And and just I mean just to really sell it, they've got they've got Paul Schaefer playing the piano for him. Oh yes, and Paul Schaefer I think helped them create these Nick the Lounge Singer characters that too. Tracks. So yeah, so that definitely <laughs> tracks. That and I, yeah, I have no problem believing that. Yeah, so we always saw Paul Schaefer accompany Bill as Nick the Lounge Singer in these sketches, and I don't know, these are just so so fun to watch. Like I'm always uplifted when when I've gone back to watch these sketches. I'm just always uplifted by, like I said, his relentless positivity and just how much darn fun he's having up there regardless of what the audience thinks yeah he's gonna have fun up there yeah yeah he's he's living his best life you will never hear the theme from star wars the same way twice he also added lyrics to i think uh was it jaws possibly he uh did the 2001 a space odyssey Yeah, that was that, that's, I mean, that was the, the same. same one at Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I even love that he's singing. Like the, the, the funny thing is, he's at one point he's singing the theme from Mash, which does have lyrics, but people didn't really know them because people tended to know the show, not the movie where the lyrics come in. And even though the song is actually kind of pretty in its own right, and strangely dark yeah. for, for a well, show. The song's called Suicide is Painless. Suicide is Painless. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. But listening to him sing it, you just, you're sitting there like, this can't be real. You know, like he, yeah. t- he pulls it into this other realm of the multiverse where the, the song did not have lyrics. He assigned them and decided this is the way it should be sung. 
back in 2022, I was part of a character countdown episode um, that was put on by our friends at the Saturday Night Network, and they had the listeners vote on the top characters, and then they counted down 20 to 1, and Nick the Lounge Singer finished 17th, and I thought, I think that was maybe recency bias. I could, I actually advocated for him uh, maybe being higher uh, than 17th. This is truly an iconic SNL character, in my opinion. There was actually an offshoot, and how Paul Schaefer describes it is that this char- next character that I'm about to bring up was maybe the precursor to Nick the Lounge Singer, but they actually wrote a different sketch for him. It was a, it was a character called Shower Mike. It was a really funny bit. If you hadn't had a chance to watch this go back, it's season two. At the end of season two, it was a Buck Henry-hosted episode. And okay. it was a great bit with Buck Henry and Gilda Radner where Bill... He was this guy who was taking a shower. He used soap as his microphone and he was kind of singing. He was doing his lounge singer kind of thing. And then it took a funny dark turn. He was started interviewing his wife who jumped in the shower with him. And then he was interviewing the man who she's having an affair with. Now tell me, kids, you kids must spend a lot of time in the shower together when I'm not here. You huh? bet. <laughs> no, it's funny. I, I'll tell you the truth. A lot of people have the wrong idea about that. It's actually a lot safer to rent a hotel room. You know, there's much less chance of meeting an aunt or an uncle, and you don't have to worry about changing the sheets on the bed. Ouch! I'm around how much is involved in this kind of thing. Well, honey, you've been confronted with this thing now. Are you going to break it off with him for the good of your marriage, or are you just going to continue to stick the knife in and twist it and twist it, huh? Uh, yes, Richard, that's exactly what we're going to do. <laughs> wow, that hurts. <laughs> okay, you have to excuse me, but uh, I'm an emotional so guy, and I really hate to get bad news. I'm sorry, but that's the way I'm built. Okay. So it's like Bill is upbeat and he's talking, he's interviewing them about their affair. And then Bill Buck Henry's like answering the questions in earnest. And it all just seems like they're having this good time talking about his wife's affair. It's like really, that's, that's part of what I loved about SNL back then. And even when they do it now is just some goofiness that turns dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I mean, the the Buck Henry episode is also one of the episodes where you get the nerds, where you get him as Todd DeLamuca. Well, you look nice, I guess. So do you. Here, I got you this. Oh, thanks, Todd. Oh, this is really beautiful, Todd. It's a wrist corsage. You wear it on your wrist. (laughs) That, to me, is another one of those iconic bill murray characters where he's just basically where like i think one of the things that murray does well is he's always kind of been a big kid i mean again sometimes to his own detriment but he's always been this great big kid who's just doesn't really want to grow up the juxtaposition of goofiness and then taking a dark turn works when you do have somebody who comes off as a big kid playing those roles so you buy the goofy nature and then Mm -hmm. the dark turn has more of an effect (laughs) uh, if it's somebody who you can believe who has just this goofy childlike sense about him and the nerds was an interesting one to me too it shouldn't have worked because i don't know if it was a novel thing to portray nerds in that stereotypical way in the mid to late 70s uh but they're well ahead of like revenge of the nerds at that point in, okay. in time, right? Mm-hmm. Like so, so it's it's still. I mean, it now now of course, nerd culture is a very very different thing. So that that whole sketch would seem very very different. Yeah. Um. But but watching what I love about that one is 
it's um, it's not just his character. It's not just Todd, but uh, or I was, you always got to say Todd. You know, like you always got to you always got to like draw it out the way that Gilda would. Oh, this is really beautiful, Todd. Watching him play off of Gilda, I think that was one of the things he did really, really well. Was along with the fact that he would sometimes just get out there on screen and go for it. Just like take the mic and start wailing or, or, you know, just commit to a bit where he extols the virtues of how hot the new first lady is. He also played very, very well. I mean, on stage played very, very well with others. So when you watch like the, um, the Greek restaurant sketch and they're doing cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheese, you know, like he's one of the guys in the back doing the cheeseburger and, and he's, he's, I think he was the one making them and everything, but it's like, he, worked well if you gave him the ball and he worked well to actually run the play and sometimes there's a real problem with that when it comes to an ensemble like there's there's some people who just if they don't have the ball they're useless with the olympia cafe sketches the cheeseburger cheeseburger ones i loved how bill was characterized in that because he he played the the owner's third cousin in those sketches, but then Belushi said, "Oh, I treat him like a fourth cousin because yeah. he's stupid." Right. So what, where you have you know Dan in those sketches doing his fast paced pitch man cheeseburger mm-hmm. cheeseburger, Bill kind of brought it down a little bit, and he was sort of kind of a pathetic doormat. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> it, cheeseburger. Those, yeah. yeah, exactly. And he would get Belushi would boss him around and call him stupid to his face and mm-hmm. and everything. That was kind of a interesting different side of Bill. Like to me that showed that Bill could go from confident and cocky to like a like I said pathetic doormat pretty instantly and, and be believable in both. I have a couple eggs and uh a couple eggs sausage. Uh, is that the link sausage or patty? Link, link, uh, egg sausage, eggs over lightly, uh, a large orange juice and coffee. Thank you. Cheeseburger. The wild thing about that is you gotta wonder. I, I I wonder how much of that was performance and how much of that was just who he was because we haven't touched on it too much. But but Murray as a persona has had this just screamingly checkered legacy in sure. in show business especially um, recently oh re- recently it's recently it's kind of taken a turn for the very very dark to which i almost want to say like we are having this conversation about only what has happened yes. on this show exactly. and not about what has happened since because what has happened since is just oh boy and not recently oh boy but like 30 years worth of oh boy but within the scope of this show if we know that he was if you if we know that he bristled with people like Chevy Chase and later on in his career he would bristle with people like Ivan Reitman or no sorry not Ivan Reitman with people like Harold Ramis and you know how he you know went on and he said he like hated the cast members that came after him like the casts themselves that came after him I think uh, Rob Schneider mentioned that one that one time when he was on their guest hosting in you know ninety two or ninety three that he's like the the whole cast just sucks. Yeah, he had like a disdain for that era yeah. of, of the show for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really, you know, I, I don't understand the um the mental makeup of somebody who can go out there and do all kinds of things, whether he's out front or whether he's in the back row, and yet we know that that's not he's not always a team player. From what I 
have gathered about his background over the years, he did kind of grow up, I guess, liking to fight and being, and, and growing up kind of tough and around tough people. And maybe he has kind of a gruff, he grew up with like a gruff kind of personality and maybe like a com- combative personality. Like some people have the fight, flight, or freeze instincts. And I think mm-hmm. Bill's instinct was, was always fight. fight. It was yeah. to fight. Yeah, that's how he was. And I think he he got he was competitive in, in things that he did and probably still does. And comedy seemed to be his main interest. And so, I mean, to me, it makes sense that he was super competitive in the comedic world and he was a fighter and he was very combative. That's just kind of his personality. I loved as well, another one that came, that I came across that I really dug was there was an episode that uh, Margot Kidder hosted and it turned, there's a sketch where it's a surprise party thrown by uh, Superman and Lois and all of the heroes yes. keep coming through and it's Bill Murray as Superman, which just on the surface is hilarious uh, because I can think of a lot of people over the years who look great as Superman. And I say that as a Superman fan, Bill Murray is not on that list. Um, so, so seeing him in like red boxing trunks with, you know, his, his paunch hanging out, they've got a stupid wig on his head and he's getting the party ready and making use of Superman's powers, how most of us jerks would make use of mm-hmm. Superman's powers and riffing with everybody else as they walk through. You have Dan Aykroyd as the flash walks through, um, you know, it's it, it just, it's, 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 it's actually a lot funnier now because a lot of these characters are much, a bi- are a much bigger part of pop culture than they were at the time. Watching, Watching Lois Lane and Lana Lang have this little thing in the background is hilarious. But um, it, that, that was one of those sketches that with Bill Murray out front, it, uh, you know, it, it's it's an ensemble piece and with him featured that I really, really loved. Oh, look at your ring. What a beautiful diamond. Oh, thanks. Hubby here made it out of a bag of easy light charcoal briquettes for me. <laughs> He's a real handyman around the house, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> they probably won't need one of these. Oh, a corkscrew. Thank you. Uh, would you let me open it first? I mean, there are some of us who don't have x-ray vision and we like to be surprised. I'm sorry. Oh, a corkscrew. A corkscrew. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. You know, it's the one thing I could really use around the house. You know, lately I've been sucking the cork out and I end up drinking the whole bottle. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, that was a, a one of those classic SNL sketches from the early years. I always remember John Belushi as the Hulk. That's, uh, I believe in that one. Yeah, and Bill. I the, mean, there's, the Invisible Woman is, is yeah like, wandering around, but nobody can see her. <laughs> yeah, uh, Bill. I mean, you're right. He wasn't like he's not the first person that I would have picked to play Superman, but you know he's got to commit <laughs> in that role and put his Bill spin on it. And yeah. I think he did he did a great job. Uh, one that if you haven't checked out too that I love was from season three. It was a Hugh Hefner hosted episode and it was a funeral magician sketch. (laughs) So yeah, so it was goofy, but again, with these dark undertones. Now I'm just trying to cheer everybody up a little bit. I'm going to keep trying, but I'm going to need a volunteer from the mourners to step up, step up and help me. Now, how about, how about this pretty girl right here? The widow gills rat. Come on, let's bring her. Oh, come on. Don't be shy. Maybe if we give her a hand, she'll come up. Come on. Let's hear it for her. Come on. Thank you. Now, we've never met before in our lives, have we? What do you mean, hardly? <laughs> no. I, what? Of course we have. I'm just kidding. Good. I think we're going to succeed. Now, do you believe in spirits? 
Oh, well, uh, I don't know. Well, be honest. I, I, I don't know. Oh, all right, all right. Shh, shh, shh. All right, on my way over here, I had the most ridiculous thought, typical, ridiculous. I thought, what if the spirits really did speak from the beyond? A little music? Professor, please. Now, I've got here an ordinary pack of playing cards, you can see. Now, there's nothing on my sleeves. So, it's like how it sounds. Bill played this fu- magician who was at this funeral, who was working the funeral. And uh, Dan Aykroyd's playing the funeral director, but and he, he ends up becoming the magician assistant. So, they're actually doing magic tricks by the casket. And then, they actually, it comes to a, almost a conclusion when they saw the casket... Like you, how you would, you know, saw the course, right. magician assistant in half. They sawed the casket yeah. in half with the body in there, and they were doing all these tricks and everything. But it was like such a perfect balance of like lighthearted and dark that I love that Bill could pull off so so well. And then he ended uh, he ended the sketch doing his lounge singing shtick, which seemed like something that he was just so comfortable just working the room in the, in that role. I was going to say, I feel like it never took much to get him to start singing that way. Like it really, and it wasn't the kind of thing where he really needs to twist his arm. You just, it was just like, Bill, sing us. Okay, fine. The other one I, I love that, um, you know, kind of what we were talking about off the top of the show on, on my own show is I love that he had the 1980 Oscars moment on, on Weekend Update. Now, uh, this brings us to Best Picture. <laughs> ah, yes. Now, breaking away, an exciting, Wonderful, new breath of fresh air in Hollywood, something exciting and wonderful. It doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> Norma Ray, well, Sally Field will get the award for Norma Way. The Academy has a way of evening things, these things out. The movie must be despised if the actress is loved. All that jazz, a difficult, difficult decision for me because I did not see it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Kramer versus Kramer, of course. This is the tough one because as all of us out there in America know, everyone in Hollywood has been divorced. At least once. People like Mickey Rooney, for example, many times. I think the Kramer versus Kramer will split their votes. Half will vote for Kramer, the other half for Kramer. They will cancel out, and Apocalypse Now will win by default. And that they then echoed it, like, 20 years later, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in a way that nobody at the time seemed to get. Like, if you watch them back to back, there's a, there's a lot of parallels between the two bits. But when he went out in 1999 and started going through all of the the 1998 Oscar nominees of of Shakespeare in Love and Saving Private Ryan and all of the British actors that he thought, you know, we shouldn't even be having them because we saved them in World War II. It's this amazing callback moment that nobody in the crowd seems to recognize. Yeah, it was 19 years after yeah. after his most recent one that he did. And I love those. And you being a movie guy, of course, I was going to bring these segments up to you. But I just love how he disqualified people that he knew. So he's like, oh, Jill Kleber, she's amazing. But she was on the show and yeah. I'm a friend of hers. So she's disqualified she's and yeah. she's out. And he would completely dismiss all the best supporting categories. <laughs> Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress, I thought long and hard, but I still don't think that anybody gives a damn about any of these things. <laughs> All of these people, they don't matter. None of them matter, yeah. And he, he also didn't see like half of the Best Picture nominees. He's like, I hear it's good, but I didn't see it, so it's out. And then <laughs> I mean, the, the great thing is there's a lot of Oscar voters who that is exactly how they go. Absolutely. And he and Bill was nominated for a Best Actor Oscar in 2004, of course, for Lost in Translation. I thought it would have been 
way more poetic if he was nominated for a best supporting role in something. I know he wasn't like supporting in Lost in Translation, but if Bill ever got nominated for that a supporting cool. role, I thought that would yeah. have just been so poetic. But I'm glad he yeah, was nominated so for something. Matter, yeah. yeah, for so it could all come full circle. But he yeah, so he did those on Weekend Update, which he actually co-anchored with Jane Curtin for a couple of years. That's something maybe that a lot of cuz he's known for his sketches and stuff, but he was on for a couple seasons as the co-anchor with Jane Curtin. I think that's that may have been kind of lost in the shuffle. Like I think people would skip straight from Chevy and then Chevy and Jane, like straight over. Like they probably in in their brains kind of jump over that because it's not really what you associate with Murray when you know when you think of you, you think of him being more of the the lovable dork. You know, like you can kind of draw a line from somebody like Murray through somebody you know, very much like somebody like uh, Chris Farley. You know, like so just the the sweet doofus who's always game for whatever you want to give him. And you know what was interesting is actually how he was introduced on Weekend Update. He was kind of the sweet doofus. He was introduced as someone who doesn't really follow the news, but has been fascinated to learn about what's going on because he was handed this role on Weekend Update. But I am happy to say that Dan is being replaced by a most capable, highly respected broadcast journalist who will report the news with credibility and dignity. Please welcome Mr. Bill Murray. Hello, you maniacs. Well, they got me doing the hard news this year, and I love it. It's incredible. I've been reading up on things that are going on. I'll tell you something. It's opened up a whole new world for me. Fascinating stuff. So he was reading these news stories like, hey, this is pretty interesting. Did you know this? And of course, Jane Curtin's already put off by Bill as she was by Dan. Of course, part of her character being put off by them. And she rolls her eyes right away at Bill like, oh my gosh, I just got done with having to co-anchor with Dan. And now I'm with this doofus. And uh, But it was a funny, and then they did a point counterpoint segment on up on that first update um, as she did with Dan and it was a fun first take on it because Bill actually agreed with Jane in the point counterpoint well Jane you know something uh, you've got a point there uh, I've been flip-flopping on this issue all along to tell you the truth and uh, at first I was all for it but then somebody told me about this bathroom thing and I I know from experience that it can take me up to 15 minutes to urinate if there is a girl in the same room. Uh, so then I was against it, and then I heard the women didn't want it, so I figured if the women don't want it, why force it on them? And, and now you, Jane, uh, you know, a woman, uh, coming out for it, and you obviously know what you're talking about. I've changed my mind. You've changed me all around. So she, like, right. he wasn't adversarial like Dan was. He was actually, you know what? I never thought about it that way, Jane. That's a really he good point. He screwed up the whole formula. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was kind of a, an about face on what on the dynamic between Dan and Jane. But then, you know, he was a little more buttoned up after that first update. They didn't play up that sweet doofus really after that. He was more just trying to be like a parody of a newsman. Still sar- mm-hmm. sarcastic. But they didn't really lean into like that lovable doofus much after he introduced himself on update. One reason why I would advocate for Bill Murray being in the <laughs> as in a Hall of Fame is that he put Chevy Chase in his place. And for me, <laughs> for me, that's a that's a mark for Bill Murray. So 
he and Chevy, I don't know if you could believe this, Ryan, but some people on SNL didn't love working with Chevy Chase. No, no. Yes. Right? No. What? What? Yeah. <laughs> so in February of 78, Chevy, and this is in season three, he comes back to host the show. And Bill confronted Chevy in Al Franken and Tom Davis's office about what a, frankly, what an asshole Chevy had been while he was on the show. And so, like, the tension built up even more during dress rehearsal. So, this was, I think, earlier that day. And then during dress rehearsal, there was tension even more. Bill made a comment about Chevy and his wife out in the hallway (laughs) at 8H. And then, literally five minutes before the live show, Chevy confronted Bill in John Belushi's dressing room. And Chevy said, like, let's go, put his hands up. And Chevy even admitted that he probably made a mistake by challenging Bill because he said Bill was tough and liked to fight, as we had talked Mm -hmm. about. So they both threw punches and Belushi, poor guy, it sounds like he was just kind of in the middle of it. And actually, he probably took more punches than Chevy and Bill combined (laughs) (laughs) during that fight. Like, you know, Gilda, Lorraine, Tom Schiller, Brian Doyle Murray was there and he was helping his brother. I think he was grabbing Chevy's arms during the fight. So I don't know. That's a point for me as far as him standing up, standing up to Chevy. Did you know much about that fight? Like over, over the years? I mean, they, they, it's, it's funny. Cause they call him, they do call him hurricane bill. And it, like, it, it sounds like while for a while, this was a force of good, it's kind of turned. So yes. it's, it's hard to suss out what was good moments of this kind of, like you say, like very, like doesn't take much to get him into the brawl. Like he's, he's, you know, he'll have your back if you get it into an argument in the bar. You'll have your back, but sometimes it that's he'll he'll also start it, and that's not that that's not great. It's a strange thing because while we love these people because they can make us laugh, they're not always the greatest people, and they're they they have to all work together. Otherwise, the whole thing just falls apart. And like there's. There's money at play. Like this is not. It's not just like a, a something that they're doing for yucks. Uh, you know, while they're all getting their college degrees. Like this is their job, and not everybody is suited for this job. As I think, you know, like you can probably attest of some of the people who have cycled through. Um, you know, who some some people have had like one year and out, and they go on to have like great careers. Or sometimes somebody is already having a great career, and they think they'll fit, and they'll drop them in, and it's like. No, you are not suited to do this. But the whole point of it, though, is that along with it being a job, like you have to get along with so many personalities. And it's, it's you know, Bill, while he is now kind of on the other side of that coin to, to many, he could, you know, maybe it has to do with like the age at the time. His At his age, he could see how people were treating other people and, you know, he'd call bullshit. Yeah, you you know what I think helped Bill a lot, and I think it was it, I think it was fortunate that he didn't get SNL right away. I think it was mm-hmm. actually helpful to him and the show that he came in with an already established cast of people, so he knew immediately kind of where he was in the hierarchy. Where yeah. instead of starting at the same time as them, and then maybe he develops more of an ego than he displayed when he was a cast member. So I think it did help him starting in season two when these people were already established. Also helped that he knew them and had worked with them in the past. So I think it was an ecosystem that sort of was able to rein in a lot of Bill's more negative tendencies during his Mm -hmm. time there. Mm -hmm. So I actually think, you know, we saw some of those negative tendencies creep out after SNL, but at SNL, 
that environment could swallow up some people, but I actually think it was really good for Bill. No, me too. And, and as, as, as I said, like he, it, it let him show off a lot of different sides of himself. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of for the last 20 years or so, he's kind of been doing the same thing. He's kind of been doing either the really, really low spoken Wes Anderson guy, or he's been the loud, you know, guy who shows up at a frat party, you know, even though he's whatever he is now, you know, 72. Um, <laughs> I forgot he used Three. to crash parties. There was a oh, little yeah. Bill Murray phase there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, so it, 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 it's a thing. It's, it's like his whole career story is fascinating and has all of these wild twists and turns, but these three years that he was doing this, it's kind of like him at his peak really and truly like he would do some other funny stuff, but the other funny stuff was, you know, it came with more money. It came with a higher profile. This is kind of what I consider like the purest part of his character. I think that's a really great way to put it. I think if you go back and watch those early SNL episodes and some of these classic sketches, we are seeing like pure Bill Murray. Whereas, you know, after SNL, we would see That's something ego different. starts to yeah, creep in. Yeah. And enabling starts to creep in. And it's like, no, 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 go back. You know, remember who you were, buddy. You know, that's that's the guy. And to his credit, you know, we live in a world where SNL cast members sometimes struggle to find their footing after the show. Uh, I love Dana Carvey, but he hasn't quite had like the movie career that say of like a Bill or Mike Myers or somebody like that. But Bill the polar opposite he you know we've we've rattled off those movies caddyshack stripes ghostbusters scrooged one of my personal favorite yeah holiday movies every wes anderson movie like just uh my favorite being rushmore uh i have to throw that in with them uh with the movie guy i think thank you i, th- I think the funny thing though is people will forget that Bill, his film career wandered in the weeds for a while after, you know, after the zenith of What About Bob and Groundhog Day, he goes on and makes some really dumb comedies. Like I'm talking things like The Man Who Knew Too Little Mm. and Operation Dumbo Drop. He made some really, really lowbrow, silly, silly, silly comedies. And it wasn't until... Wes Anderson comes around in 98 and puts him into Rushmore and basically reinvents Bill into this much quieter, sadder version of himself. Like he's not being Nick the Lounge Singer anymore, that his film career takes back off and becomes what we know it to be today. Because he was in, you know, he was in real danger of burning out his comedy card and doing, you know, he made some real, like, I tell, t- I'm not kidding people. Look up his IMDb page and watch what happens in the mid nineties. It is not a pretty, it is not a pretty ride. I chose to forget operation Dumbo drop myself. I never have. <laughs> yeah, no, I never yeah. have. Yeah. Um, his, you know, and that's the thing is, is this, what, what we saw in SNL, like he would go on to greater things and then he would sort of start slipping into these not great things when his career, when his ego was in full tilt, but it, it took somebody coming in there and saying, I think you can do this other thing if you let yourself embrace this side of you. Like every comedian is also usually the sad clown. So it's like embrace that sadder sack part of you, that father that's not you know completely confident with the choices he's made or the, the person who's lost a few people along the way. 
And I think we can actually get something out of this. Yeah, man. Wes Anderson, it seemed like really tapped into that side of Bill. And of course, they obviously like Sophia Coppola together. Too, and Sophia Coppola, yeah, with the, the zenith of like the critical acclaim that Bill would receive for those mm-hmm. movies would be lost in translation, of course. But I've, I've always been fascinated over the years with his, with his work with Wes Anderson, even up until the most recent one. Uh, it seems like they just really love working with each other. And he, Wes was like really good for, for, for Bill's career. I, I love that you, how you put it, sad clown. I think that's what yeah. a lot of comedians, they get to a certain age, we want to see that part of them. Make It makes it more interesting. Definitely. So there is that. That's what uh, Ryan McNeil has to say about Bill Murray. What did you think? Send us an email, jamie at snlhof.com, and let us know what you thought. Do you agree that Bill Murray belongs in the SNL Hall of Fame? Do you think recent situations that have come to light will somehow impact his entrance into the SNL Hall of Fame. It's going to be curious to watch. That's what I think. But enough about me. Let's hear more from our featured guest here, uh, Bill Murray, and move right into the nomination sketch. This is one of his more famous reoccurring characters. This is Nick the Lounge Singer. So let's get right to that. This is from season three, episode 10, Nick, the lounge singer with Bill Murray. I always open with a little something by a guy named Richard Strauss called 2001. Welcome to the Potter Room, everybody, up here at beautiful Meatloaf Mountain. I'm Nick Winters, and I'm here to entertain you, so sit back, have a hot buttered rum, and let it happen. Now, what do I see here down in front? We got a cute little girl here with a cast on her leg. Honey, why did you bother to come up to Meatloaf with a broken leg? I, I, I broke it today. This is my vacation. Oh, that's terrible. I guess we'll be seeing a lot of you here in the Potter Room, huh? I'm sure everybody wants to know. What's your name and how did you do it? Oh, I'm Marilyn Sunberg, and I rented my skis and boots here at Meatloaf Mountain, and my bindings were too tight, and uh, I broke my leg walking over to the tow lift. Oh, bummerski, huh, everybody? That is awful. Well, the guys in rental are usually real good. It must have been some sabotage of some sort by disgruntled skiers or something. It happens. Hey, I am going to autograph... Your cast here, if you don't mind, a little something I always sign. Don't eat yellow snow, Nick Winters. All right, honey? You're welcome, kitten. Hey, who's this crazy dude? Your old man? Uh, Paul Sunberg. I'm from uh, uh, Minneapolis. 
Uh-huh. Glenn, what do you do besides babysit for Marilyn here? I'm, I'm a chem- chemical purchaser for the Ice Master Saw Company. Uh, here's my card uh, right here. Uh, you know, you could use uh, the product here at uh, Meatloaf Mountain. You know, you could use. Bueno, my my amigo. Uh, we'll put this up over the bar with some of the other cards. Mr. and Mrs. Sunberg, this next song is going to be for you because I hope that leg heals and you're back on the slopes in a couple of weeks. Oh, that cast makes me so sad. Oh, don't it make my brown eyes? Don't it make my brown eyes? Don't it make my brown eyes blue? Tasty lick, Paul. Oh, don't it make my brown eyes. You know, they're actually hazel. Don't it make my brown eyes. Don't it make my brown eyes blue. Love it, love it. Just a second. We have a celebrity in the audience tonight. It's Heinz Clymer with a snow bunny in his arm. He's the head of the ski patrol. Up to a little bit of uh, night hot dogging tonight, Heinz? <laughs> Not particularly. I just came to cash my paycheck. <laughs> You know, at 9.30 tonight, Heinz will lead the ski school and the whole patrol in the torch snake dance all the way down Bear, Bear Run. So let's see if he's in any kind of condition to pull it off. Tell us, Heinz, where did the snake torch dance originate? As a matter of fact, Nick, uh, the torch dance, the snake dance originated in Zermatt, Switzerland during the World War uh, as a signal to Allied bombers. A little bit of history, everybody. Is that true? No. I just said that because you will believe anything and you are a pimp. <laughs> and if you don't leave me alone, I shall strike you. Okay. And who is this pretty snow muffin here with you, Heinz? Mrs. Lyman. Excuse me, what? Mrs. Lyman. I'm sorry, could you say it one more time? Mrs. Lyman. Oh, Mrs. Lyman. Oh, I see. Are you still married, Mrs. Lyman? Yes, my husband is exhausted. He's in the room and I don't ski. I see. Well, you make friends with Heinz here. We'll give you a couple of free lessons, have you up on the boards in no time. Mrs. Lyman, how about a request? Oh. Well, there are never any requests, I guess, because there's only one way that everybody wants it, and that's with plenty of snow. <laughs> ah, that's the way. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I like it. Six inches of powder. That's the way. With a 50-inch base. I like it. And a lot of cute snow bunnies. do 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 Ah, that's the way we all like it. No lift lines either. Uh oh, wait a second. You hear what I hear? It's the Snowcat, Meatloaf Mountain Snowcat, operated by our own Jimmy Joe Red Sky, a fellow who manicures all the slopes and runs the snow guns to make sure none of you dudes hit any rocks up there. He comes in every night about this time to give the snow report. Let's give him a welcome. Come on, Jimmy Joe Red Sky. Look what I got here. Whoa, what is that? It's a porcupine. I was coming down Bear Run doing about 50 in the snow cut. He ran right out in front of me. He froze. He looked in the headlights, froze, and I hit him. <laughs> I hit him with the snowpacker. He's, he's uh, froze up solid now. But, you know, you can make a good uh, soup out of their quills, you know. Well, how are the snow conditions for tomorrow? You know, one thing about Indians is that they always know when it's going to snow, and I love that. It's terrific. What do you think about tomorrow? Well, my nose tells me it's going to snow tomorrow. See the veins sticking out? I guess you'll get about three to six inches. I know, because I'm going to be out there making it with my snow guns. I need a drink. Okay. And this one's on Nick Winters, if you would, Herbert. Thank you. Well, great. There you have it. Hey, everybody, snow tomorrow, but let's all think powder and lots of it, please. Who's a powder animal? Everybody, all right. Okay, Polly, you ready to play a little bit of music? No. 
Now, wait, this is the Nick Winter Show, and I do the entertaining. Thank you. Let's go out with something really hot for these folks. A big hit out of 77. Ah, Star Wars. Nothing but Star Wars. Give me the Star Wars. Don't let them end. Ah, Star Wars. If they should How about that nutty Star Wars bar? Can you forget all the creatures in there? And hey, Darth Vader in that black and evil mask, did he scare you as much as he scared me? Ah, Star Wars! Those near in Star Wars! My seventh winner up here, Star Wars! That is, of course, a classic. Nick Winters, uh, well, he had a different last name in virtually every sketch he was in, but that's uh, Nick the Lounge Singer. This is Nick Winters with the the you know the big closing Star Wars number that we've seen on all the um, all the retrospective fifteenth and going back to the fifteenth anniversary. I remember seeing that and just being blown away. I want to thank Brian McNeil for joining us this week. Please visit his work at thematinee.ca. Thomas and Matt, as always, thank you. And you, the listener, thank you as well. Please rate and review the show. That's what I've got for you this week. So if you would do me a favor and on your way out, as you walk past the weekend update exhibit, turn out the lights because the SNL Hall of Fame is now closed. Thanks for listening to the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. Make sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at SNLHOF. This is Doug Denant saying, this is Doug Denant saying, see you next week. Cats and such.